Revelation, not exactly a book that uh, people are eager to just grab and, uh, and read their first time through the Bible because uh, there's a lot of mystery that kind of surrounds the book of Revelation. There's these visions, there's these metaphors, there's these pictures, and for all the mystery, uh, seeming mystery that goes on there, um, it's, it's really helpful to understand really the message of Revelation when you understand part of the purpose of why Revelation was written in the first place. So best estimates, and they're very good estimates, seem to suggest that Revelation came out about 95 A.D. John exiled on an island of Patmos. 95 A.D., and that was about three years before this Roman emperor Trajan was about to come into power and rule till about 117 A.D. Now Trajan did not like Christians. And while there was already Christian persecution going on under Nero and, and some of the other Roman emperors, uh, Trajan was about to ramp up that persecution even more so when he took power. He would take Christians, he'd put them before proconsuls and rulers and say, are you a Christian? And if so, you have to curse Christ, recant the faith, worship the emperor, and if you don't, you will be tortured and you will be executed. This is our law. And with that on the horizon... Facing the, the Christian church, John writes this book. God gives John this revelation, this vision to encourage these Christians because this, this persecution, as with all persecution, is meant to what? It's meant to stop the faith. It's meant to stop the movement. It's meant to stomp out Christianity and kill it. And yet, it, it, it didn't even come close to working. We have records, um, historical records of dialogues of Christians who were on trial and told to recant, worship the emperor. They, they said, no, we're, we're not going to. And they said, okay, then the verdict is you are guilty. And the sentence is you are going to be tortured and executed. And these Christians literally saying to this, thanks be to God. And Rome didn't know what to do. <laughs> the world didn't know what to do. They've never seen a reaction like this. They've never seen so many people hold so strongly to their beliefs, to their convictions in the face of death and, and go into death saying, thanks be to God? Yeah. Like they had a comfort, they had a hope, they had a bravery, they had a conviction about themselves in large part due to the message of Revelation. Because for all its mystery and its visions and language, one of the, the, the overarching narrative arc of Revelation from beginning to end, Christ wins. Because Christ has already won. And if Christ has already won, if he's already defeated sin, if he's already defeated death, if he's already defeated the devil, you got nothing to be afraid of. You've got nothing to worry about. And so Christianity thrived because they endured. Now let me ask you, how are you enduring? How are you doing in your endurance? Do you have that hope? Do you have that confidence in what you're facing and going through? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time struggling to endure just a bad email that I get or having a bad day, a bad text message. They were facing, they were facing torture. They were facing death. What's... What's my excuse? What's your excuse? I, I know 
that some of you are, are suffering so much that you feel like you're crumbling. You feel like you're falling apart and you're frustrated and, and you're anxious and you're depressed and you're worried and, and you don't know how to deal with it and you don't know how to endure through it. Maybe some of you are, are, are crumbling towards the peer pressure that's, that's all there at school trying to get you to cave. Or maybe it's the expectations of the job, the expectations of the season, uh, the employer, the friends, the family. Maybe it's the, the words that were said, the argument, the divorce that happened that, that still is just killing you. The things that they did that you, that you just, you can't seem to let it go because it just seems to haunt you and stick around with you. Now, some of you, maybe you're, you're tempted to think, not just how can I endure, but what's the point of enduring? Because if this is what happened to me, and they, the wicked, the evil, the, the, the people without God seem to be just getting theirs in the world, they seem to be going on, no problems in life, and this is what I get? What's the point of me being faithful? What's the point of me sacrificing so much for God when it seems like if nice guys finish last, well, at least they finish ahead of Christians. Like, how do you endure? How do you, how do you get through not just the day today, but, but everything else that the world is going to throw at you, especially for being a Christian and being faithful to God? How do you endure? How do you stay strong? How do you hold fast to your convictions and not bow, not cave, like so many of the other churches were guilty of? And Revelation has the answers. Revelation is, is jam-packed with all of these promises, and today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at <clears throat> the letter that we just read, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, and of all the seven churches, there are two churches that Jesus gives nothing but praise and no condemnation. He doesn't chide them, he doesn't discipline them, but instead he holds them up and encourages them. Philadelphia is one of those. And of those two churches that there is nothing but praise, Philadelphia is the one church that stands out from all the others as having the most discourse, the most dialogue, the most comfort and promise and encouragement. Because as you read this letter, you get the impression that they were beaten down, they were battered, they were bruised, outside looked unimpressive, inside probably felt the same way, and Jesus gives them encouragement and praise and more encouragement. And we're going to be looking at some of those promises. It's going to be a little bit different than, than maybe uh, typically some of the other sermons that we have, but we're going to be taking a look at three different promises that God gives. And there's way more than three promises. I cut out a lot of this sermon, so yeah, one of those comments again. Yep, I cut out a lot of this from this sermon, but there are three promises that I want you to hold on to from the church in Philadelphia so that whether you're going through something right now or trust me, it's on the horizon and it will come, that you can hold on to Jesus, to Christ, to God's word because of these promises. The promises are going to be as follows. First, we're going to look at the promise of an open door that no one can shut. What exactly is that? We're going to look at the promise of God's justice that is coming. And we're going to look at the promise of a rock-solid identity in Christ. Open door, justice, identity. Let's dive in. The first promise today, the open door. Here's what Jesus says. These are the words of him who is the holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. He says, I know your deeds, Philadelphia. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength 
yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, if you were here last week or, or even if you weren't, this church is like juxtaposed as it stands right next to the church that came before it, Sardis. And, and if you remember, or, or even if you don't, what God said to the church in Sardis is, Sardis, you look great. You look fancy and flashy. You look so wonderful. It looks like you are alive. But guess what? On the inside, you are deader than a doornail. There is no pulse in you whatsoever. There is no life. You need a resurrection. You need a revival. You need a reformation. You need to wake up. And if that's Sardis, Philadelphia is like the exact opposite. They are alive and kicking and bursting with life on the inside. They're faithful to God. They're facing this intense persecution, but they're not caving. They're not bending. And yet on the outside, they don't look all that impressive. You have little strength. You look weak. And maybe they even felt it at times. We seem so small. We seem like we're not making a dent. Like, if, if you want to picture this in terms of a car, okay? Philadelphia is not a Cadillac with the chrome and the leather and the sound system and the bells and the whistles and all the gadgets and everything. It is not a Tesla that you can just let go of the wheel, fall asleep, and drive. I know you're not supposed to do that. Please don't do that. It is not a Lamborghini or a Ferrari that is going to turn any heads. You know what Philadelphia is? Philadelphia is your Honda Accord that still has the crank windows that some kids, I'm not even sure if they know what the crank windows are. It still has the manual locks, and all it has is a rear view mirror because there is no display here. Maybe there's a cassette player. Maybe not. There's might be a radio, but you know what that Honda Accord does have? A five-star safety rating and reliability. And it'll get you to where you need to go, and it'll get you there safely. And Jesus says, Philadelphia, that's everything. And I commend you for that. And I love you for that. And I praise you, and I lift you up for that in the face of everything that you're going through. And to give them a dose of encouragement— He says this, he says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, some commentators, when they read this, say, well, maybe this open door is like this this gospel outreach, this this massive amount of evangelism that they're going to be able to do and spread the word to the city of Philadelphia, and they'll get people coming in their doors like they've never heard before. But more likely, what other commentators suggest is this promise is none other than just simply put the promise of heaven. And for people in that situation, they needed this promise. Now, why do I say it's the promise of heaven? Well, if you look at the Gospels and you look at a lot of Jesus' teaching that he gives, oftentimes he describes heaven and getting into heaven, the presence of God, as if it's this door that you have to make every effort to get through it while it is open. And once it is shut, comes the warning that says, it will not be opened again. And there will be weeping, there will be gnashing of teeth, there will be kicking and screaming and all sorts of people upset, pounding on the door, let me in. But they lost their chance. And this, this language right here is directly linked to what Jesus describes himself in the verse before this, right? These are the words of him who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Maybe that seems so obscure to us in our 21st century, but make no mistake, the the original recipients of this letter, they totally understood that. Like this is almost verbatim from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. 
And if you were to look at chapter 22 and see the context there, he's talking about a situation there and using a person that is going to become the new steward of the palace as a foreshadowing of the coming Savior, the one who holds the keys to the new Jerusalem, heaven itself, the Bible often describes it as. That what he shuts and what he opens, he alone can do it because he has the keys to lock and unlock. And if he locks it, you can't open it. If he unlocks it, you can't shut it. It's a foreshadowing of the Christ who, who says, I have the keys to heaven itself, the presence of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and you put all this together. And here's what he's saying to Philadelphia. Philadelphia, I know what you're going through. I see the hurt. I see the, how hard it is for you. And yet understand that there is no amount of pain, there is no amount of suffering that is going to be able to close that door that I am holding on and holding open for you. That door is what I want you to go through. I see what you're going through. I see the suffering you're going through. I want you to see and know what you will ultimately go through, Philadelphia. Now, Think about what this promise means for you and how this can give you so much strength to endure what's going on. I don't know if you've noticed, but it isn't exactly easy to be faithful to Christ in this world today. Just turn on the news, go to school, listen to someone else talk, and you hear all the voices of Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air and, and all of these lies that are coming at you in any sort of form, trying to get you to cave, trying to get you to compromise. We've seen that in so many of the churches before this, right? The temptations to say, well, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if we just, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. It's easier to ask for forgiveness and permission, right? And, and so many times that just leads to disaster and sin upon sin upon sin. That's, that's what's out there. And the pressure to be faithful, it just mounts against you, right? Being faithful to God, it doesn't do you any favors in the world. It's not going to get you the likes. It's probably not going to get you ahead. It's probably not going to get you the promotions. It's probably not going to get you as many friends as you could probably have. It's going to hurt. And some of you probably know that better than others. And Jesus says, there's an open door. And I know it hurts. But I want you to know that no amount of suffering is able to close this door that I hold wide open for you, Christians. And I know it's hard and I know it's long, but guess what? When you enter through that door, you're going to see it was totally worth it. But I also know there's some of you that don't struggle with the, the pressures from the outside world. It's, it's more of an internal wrestling and, and tug-of-war match with the voices of Satan himself or maybe your own voice, that, that every day you look in the mirror and all you see is that sin and Satan nagging right there saying, you think God is going to keep an open door for you? You think he could forgive that? You think he's going to want you with him? How in the world could you ever hold on to hope? And that guilt and that, that sin, it just weighs you down. And do you know what the open door that no one can shut means for you? It means there is no sin too great that God cannot forgive. That all there is is an open door for repentant sinners who trust in him. 
It means that Satan himself, the world, all the lies cannot overcome Jesus. If Jesus is holding that door open, he, he's beating everybody else. Nothing can overpower him. So hang on and endure and believe that promise because the door is open and he can't wait to see you. That's promise number one. Promise number two, promise of God's justice. So for this church that, that seems so strong, small and so weak, here's what God says. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. And I just want to pause right there because that can sound so confusing, right? A synagogue of Satan, Jews who aren't Jews, they're liars. What exactly is going on? And, and what's going on is if you were to open your Bibles to John chapter 8, um, what you would see is a conversation that Jesus is having with Jews who are ticked. They're really upset with Jesus, not just because they reject him and don't believe and don't like what he's teaching, but also because Jesus hit right at their heart. He said, you aren't Jews. You are not true Jews at all. Your father is not Abraham. And for a Jew, that was, that was a moment of pride. That was an was a attack on their identity. They said, we can pull out our genealogy right now and show you how our blood DNA traces all the way back to Abraham. What do you mean we're not legitimate children of Abraham? And Jesus says, I don't care about your earthly genealogy and DNA. I'm talking about spiritual children of Abraham, the children of the promise that was given to Abraham. That's what God cares about, and that's not who you are. Because if you were real children, if you were real Jews, you'd accept me. You'd listen to me. You'd rejoice that your Messiah has come. But as it is, you're not only rejecting me, you're trying to kill me. And you know what that means? You're not children of, of Abraham. You're children of Satan. Like the devil is your daddy. And that's what's happening here. Like there is this apparent persecution from the synagogue, from these Jews. They were allowed to practice their religion. Christians weren't. And not only were they kicking these Christians out of their synagogues, but oftentimes what these Jews would do was they would ramp up the Roman persecution against the Christians. You see that happening in Paul's missionary journeys in the New Testament. He goes somewhere, the Jews reject him, and then they bring the Romans along and Paul has to leave. And Whatever the persecution was going on, it was hard, it was brutal, it was injustice. And here's what Jesus says. He says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, some interpret that as saying like, okay, so there's just going to be this mass conversion of these Jews from the synagogue and they're going to join and they're going to change their hearts. But more likely, commentators say, what this is is simply a promise of God's justice. He says, I see it. I am very much aware of all the hurt, of all the injustice that is going on and happening. And guess what? I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to deal with it. You may look at them and say, oh, they just seem to get off scot-free and no problems. And he says, leave it to me because I'm going to take care of it. Now, do you understand the magnitude that this promise can really have for you in your life. Not only is it difficult to be faithful, but as a Christian, um, you don't exactly have to go looking for injustices to find you. 
turn on the news, listen to your friends, go outside, the, the cultural area, it's, it's coming at you. Maybe your boyfriend breaks up with you because you won't go too far. Maybe your girlfriend dumps you because you believe in a six-day creation. You believe the Bible is literal and you take all of it, even that stuff that, you know, just doesn't seem like it agrees with us today. Really? It seems so unintelligent, so dumb. And maybe you don't get the, the job because the employer doesn't agree with your beliefs. Maybe you get fired because of what you believe. Maybe you are suffering some sort of hurt and heartache that someone did and it was wrong and, and you know it and they probably know it, but guess what? They seem to be doing just fine. And when you suffer that injustice, you know the last thing that you want to hear? Turn the other cheek. <laughs> okay, sure. Forgive. As you've been forgiven. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That seems like the last thing that you want because you know the only thing that you're consumed with when you're consumed with the hurt? Justice. Make the wrong right. This is not fair. This is wrong. I'm a victim here. And if you don't get justice, you're tempted to take matters into your own hands so that you can get vengeance, so that you can exact your own justice. And when you're not able to do that, there's a temptation to just feel so defeated that you are a victim and you want everyone to know that you're a victim and you feel stuck. And you can't get over it. And you just remain there because you feel like there is no hope. Because you feel like there is no one who sees. There is no one who understands. There is no one who gets it. And someone has to do something. And this promise is freeing. This is a promise that Jesus says, I see it. I know what was done. And he says in Romans 12, you know what? It is mine to avenge. I will repay. I see what's going on. You don't need to stay there. But you can move on because you can trust that I'm a better judge than anyone else is. That I see it all the way to bottom and clearer more than any jury could. And I will take care of it. In the end, no one is going to get away with anything. And when you know that truth, you can take that victim card and throw it away because you realize that's not who you are. And yeah, the wrongs and the hurt, they, they happened, but you can move on with your head held high, not in a cocky confidence, but instead in a Christ-like confidence that says, he's got it. He'll take care of it. I got nothing to worry about. And you can meet that, that persecution, that suffering with a quiet resistance, with love, with kindness, with compassion that says, okay, I'm not going to let this define me. You see how freeing that is? This is a promise that allowed the Philadelphians to keep going, gave them courage to face what was coming because God's got it in the end. What do I need to fear? It's promise number two. Last promise. Promise of a, a rock-solid identity. Before I dive into the scripture where you see this, something about identity, you either really don't care about it <laughs> or it's, it consumes you in more ways than you can even imagine. Maybe depending on who you are, what time of, uh, what generation you lived and grew up, maybe sometimes you say, I don't see what the big fuss is about identity, but I know a lot of kids today Gen Z's, millennials, 
and our culture is just awash with conversations about identity. It's consuming so many things. Like, like think of the Disney movies that have come out recently, like Moana and Frozen and all of these princesses and all these messages that say, you find who you are. You look deep down inside of yourself, cast off what everybody else says about you, and you discover your own identity. Who cares? And whatever you find, that is the truth. That is who you are. So many shows out there that are just consuming people to think about this. And Jesus says, Let me tell you the truth of who you really are. Philadelphia, let me tell you who you really are. Here's what he says. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown. I'll come back to that in a second. The one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never will they leave it. So for this church, for this group of Christians who was struggling, who felt so weak, he says, let me tell you who you are. And he gives them two metaphors, a crown, and a pillar. Now first, take a look at the crown. He doesn't say, I'm coming, hold on, so that in the end you get a crown. No, he says, hold on so no one can take your crown. In other words, you have a crown already. And you know the kind of people who have crowns? People who are victorious, people who are winners, people who have overcome. And what Jesus is saying is that crown is already yours. Because in Christ, he's already overcome. And you, in Christ, you have a crown. You're already a victor. And then he says, because of that, I'm going to make you a pillar, a strong pillar, piece of stone that is just so rock solid that it can withstand so much and it can hold up under the weight of so much. He says, that is who you are in me. Not a victim, but a winner, a victor over this world and the garbage and the mess and the stuff that happens in this world and the suffering that you've got. That is who you are. You are a pillar able to withstand because you're standing on me. And can you imagine how different our lives would be if we recognized that every single day? If we, if we woke up and remembered who we really are in Christ. Like, think of how much less the criticism would hurt because you're not living for an audience of all these people to like you. And trust me, as a self-proclaimed people pleaser, I need to hear this. You're not living for all the likes and the comments. You know what you're living for? An audience of one. And he tells you, you're a victor. Think of how much faster the wounds would heal because you realize that no matter what was done to you, you have everything to gain. And it's yours right now. What do you have to be afraid of? What do you have to lose? You have everything to gain. Three promises, lots more, but three promises we talked about today. And you put it all together. And I guess maybe the last thing is then, so what? We have these letters written to these churches, different applications, different situations for the church at large to learn from. So we look at Philadelphia, being faithful is tough, endure, look what you have to stand. So what does God want his church to learn today? And there's no one single application to this, but the application I'll tell you right now is simply this. What God wants his church to learn and what God wants his church to be today in the world 
is to simply be the church. Revolutionary, I know. <laughs> but what he's trying to say is, Philadelphia, keep going. You don't look strong, you look small, you look weak, you don't look unimpressive, you probably feel that way. So what? Be faithful. Hold on. Because that's how the church influences the world. Be the church. We are not to be a reactionary, cloistered group of people that when something doesn't go our way or when something goes awry and a mess, and it always does and has in every generation, it's called sin, that we don't just put our hope in presidents and politicians and policies and legislation and all of these things, but instead we'd be the church. And we put our hope in God and we continue to be the church like Philadelphia was, an alternative community that doesn't get angry, that doesn't react, but instead just continues to love because we're different. We're different in how we talk. We're different in what we believe. We're different in what we teach. And we're different in how we genuinely love even those who, who oppose us. It's crazy. And it doesn't seem that grandiose it seems unimpressive. It seems insignificant. Isn't that God's MO? That's how God operates. Like what the world values, strength, power, significance, and devalues like puniness and weakness. God flips that. He values meekness. He uses weakness. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. He uses the small things. He uses the weak things like, oh, I don't know, a promise given to the first two people when they sinned. I said, I'm going to undo it all. Something so small and seemingly insignificant like a baby born in the podunk town of Bethlehem to a peasant girl named Mary. The small things like 11 confused and not so confident disciples who Jesus says, my work here is done, your work is beginning. Take this word, you 11 disciples, and go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Come again? <laughs> and this is how God operates. The small things to do the great things. Because big things start small. I've talked about this before, but how in the world did a church that had such a small core, you might say, a small following with no political, financial, social clout or backing, and it was illegal at the time, become the most dominant religion of the strongest empire in the world, Rome, in just a couple hundred years, and then reach to the ends of the earth. It happened by being the church, <laughs> by being faithful, by not changing, by not trying to reach for something that we think will work, but instead looking at what God has already given us, holding fast to those promises. Be the church. It may not seem as grandiose as you'd like, but it's how God gets his work done. And when you know who you are in Christ and when you know whose you are, you can endure and stand up under so much because you know that your Jesus is standing right there with you. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.